listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. Hello, Charlie Parker, treasurer of the NLJSP. This podcast is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professions, and our motto is, the member is first. Thank you. Contact information can be found in the show notes, including our toll-free number, which is 1-855-625-8610. Please check out Life on Record, a gift of recorded messages for any special occasion to a loved one. See our show notes for details. Luz, who continued to meet with Poli, offered ways the 40 million package could be reconfigured, but refused to increase the deal. The PATCO leadership set a strike deadline for August 3rd, at the same time making new demands that included the 32-hour work week, a $10,000 per person across the board wage hike. Luz, calling the demands nothing short of outrageous, warned there would be no more concessions. In Congress, 55 senators signed a letter accusing PATCO of threatening to force concessions from the government and by punishing air travelers and warned that Congress would not be receptive to any demands negotiated by force. Most significantly, it vowed to back Reagan if he chose to use the full force of the law to protect the public interest. When Lewis told Reagan PATCO was set to strike, the president instructed Labor Secretary Ray Donovan to advise the union's leadership that as a former union president, I was probably the best friend organization had in the White House. But I could not continent an illegal strike nor permit negotiations to take place as long as one was in progress. Late in the morning of August 3rd, just four hours after the strike was officially called, Reagan issued an ultimatum from the Rose Garden, stating that striking controllers would be fired if they did not return to their jobs within 48 hours. Let me make one thing plain, Reagan told the nation. I respect the right of workers in the private sector to strike. Indeed, as president of my own union, I led the first strike ever called by that union. But we cannot compare labor management relations in the private sector with government. Government cannot close down the assembly line. It has to provide without interruption the protective services which are government's reason for being. Seconding his boss's remark, Drew Lewis assured reporters, I don't care whether it's 9,000 or 12,000 or 100,000. Whoever is not at work will be fired. Attorney General Smith also followed up on his earlier warning. His Justice Department hit PATCO with $4.4 million in fines for violating the back-to-work order and filed felony charges against 72 PATCO local leaders in 20 cities. Pauly predicted that he would be arrested, but the government chose not to make a martyr of him although five executives of PATCO locals were taken into custody. There's more effort going into busting our union than there is into fighting drug abuse or organized crime, gripe Polly after. News photos showed PATCO officers in handcuffs, but he insisted the controller's spirit would not be broken. PATCO is more than a name, he stated 
defiantly. PATCO is more than a union. It's a religion. The president did not have everyone on his side. It seems to me particularly embarrassing to see pictures in the media of the PATCO strikers being escorted to jail in leg irons and manacles. While we are all cheering lustily the courage of like Wellis uh, and solidarity, said Congressman William D. Ford. I suspect that if the equivalent of PACA went on strike in Russia tomorrow, we would have parades in the streets in support of them. There were also expressions of disappointment that Reagan refused to make even an attempt at bargaining. What is absolutely without precedent, at least in modern times, observed John Dunlap, Secretary of Labor, in the administration of President Gerald Ford, and a co-author of New York State's Taylor Law, which prohibits public workers from striking, but allows for methods to soothe labor management tensions, is that the Reagan administration has brought in no outside dispassionate group to look at the problems. That ain't right. The administration has decided to leave no avenue of escape for the union. You just don't do that. The union probably missed a chance to gain public support when it failed to adequately publicize the safety and working conditions that motivated the strike. In a year in which the country saw the end to the 16-month trauma of Americans being held hostage by Iranian Revolutionary Guards and Reagan had himself almost been assassinated, the idea of well-paid controllers grounding air travel because they wanted more money simply proved not to be a winning our compelling crusade. Reality was the strike was probably lost the moment it became evident that the controllers were not indispensable for the impact of the strike on the nation's commercial airlines was far less profound than Patco had hoped. Initially, it grounded about half the nation's 15,000 commercial flights, causing cancellations and difficulties at several major hubs. But the Reagan administration had in anticipation of a strike, and apparently unbeknownst to PATCO, obtained an improved strike contingency plan from the FAA to replace one drawn up during the Carter years. The new plan managed air traffic by reducing it 25% overall through a method known as flow control, wherein takeoffs at one airport are closely coordinated with the volume of landings elsewhere thus reducing the strain on controllers. The FAA also temporarily grounded all non-commercial and non-essential forms of aviation. In addition to the controllers who were either not in the union or did not strike, about 1,000 PACO strikers had heeded Reagan's 48-hour ultimatum and returned to work, and many supervisors as well as military controllers also filled in where needed. Meanwhile, the FAA's air controller training facility in Oklahoma City reported that 77,000 job applications had poured in during the first several days of the standoff. Due to the 1978 deregulation of the airline industry, which had allowed for the emergence of low-priced airline competitors like People Express and New York Air, the industry was suffering from numerous flight redundancies. 
the need to reduce the number of aircraft aloft for safe handling by the replacement controller force gave the airlines the opportunity to sift through presently scheduled flights and suspend those that were least profitable. Conspicuously unhelpful were the Airline Pilots Association, ALPA, as well as other airline unions such as machinists and flight attendants who refused to go out in sympathy with PATCO. Most of their members crossed PATCO's picket lines to report to work. Unlike the controllers, other workers more directly affiliated with the airlines were private sector unions and governed by the Railway Labor Act. Since the controller strike was illegal, they could not join it without risking damage suits from the airlines. And as with the general public, the relatively high pay received by the controllers created minimal sympathy among lower-paid airline workers. In addition, pilots saw potential harm to their own jobs in that the controller strike was allowing the government and the airlines to trim flight schedules. The failures of ALPA's 40,000 pilots to stand with PACO was perhaps the strategic blow to the controller strike. Since a combined walkout of the two unions could not have failed to shut down the nation's air travel network, a clear result of this shift from the Leyden to the Poli administration had failed to consult adequately with other airline-related unions. On August 16th, the Coalition of Flight Attendants took out a full-page ad in the New York Times reprinting Reagan's October 1980 letter to PACO in which he had vowed his concern for the outdated equipment and punishing work schedules controllers dealt with and the ramifications for air safety. Reagan had ended his letter with words, I pledge to you that my administration will work very closely with you to bring about a spirit of cooperation between the president and the air traffic controllers. The flight attendants admonished Reagan to honor his pledge to the air traffic controllers and return to the bargaining table with PATCO. The community of international air controllers also offered support. The Canadian Controllers Union refused for two days to clear flights emanating from the United States, and Portuguese controllers based in the Ozars staged a two-day stoppage. Both efforts caused some disruption and delays on transatlantic routes, but were largely symbolic. On August 13th, the 61-country International Federation of Air Traffic Controllers Associations meeting in Amsterdam voted not to back the striking U.S. controllers, although, like other labor bodies, it urged Reagan to reopen talks with PATCO. There was also a morally reprehensible element to the controllers' action that reflected negatively on them, the appearance that they had forced the White House into a game of chicken using the lives of innocent air travelers. As everyone knew, some sort of incident, a near-miss involving two jets, or worse, would offer convincing proof of the controller's indispensability, while each hour that passed safely tended to underscore the Reagan administration's vow that the system could function without them. Within days, flights were back to a 70% level, the quick adjustment encouraging the president suggests that before the strike, the air traffic control system had about 6,000 more controllers than it really needed to operate safely.
They had not anticipated Reagan's willingness to break with the White House practice and insist on firmly enforcing the letter of the laws governing federal workers. These laws expressed the idea that employees' right to organize was in the public interest, so even though Reagan could legally fire the strikers who spurned his 48-hour deadline, he himself was failing to honor the law's broader implication. Nixon's handling of the 1970 postal strike to make it incumbent on the White House to at least try for mediated solutions instead of Reagan's carpet bombing approach as Lane Kirkland, Meany's successor at the AFL-CIO, termed it. Compounding the loss of their jobs was the government's effort to wreak havoc on the controllers' lives. It saw two PACO's decertification, thus denying the now ex-controllers their organization and took special actions to completely prevent fired controllers from having access to unemployment benefits, housing subsidies, and other federal benefit programs. Lane Kirkland pointed out to reporters that the president's cruel actions were reminiscent of the Denberry Hatter's case of 1908 in which severe financial penalties were levied against striking workers even to the point of attaching their homes and bank accounts. One singular problem for the controllers was that their skills were not easily transferable to other kinds of employment. There were clearly grave implications for organized labor in what had transpired. Not only had Reagan fired 11,000 government employees he had turned his back on eight decades of labor pro progress by whatever name it had ever aspired to be known from industrial democracy to collective bargaining. Democratic House Speaker Thomas P. Tip O'Neill, Jr., with grudging respect, conceded that the president was a tough, two-fisted person. My brief dealings with him this year show he doesn't know the art of compromise. It was... Vintage Reagan, the defining of a controversy in simplistic moral extremes, a refusal to examine nuanced opinions or alternatives, a lack of interest in bargaining, and the adoption of a political stance that was admired for its intransigence alone. Already, only seven months along in his presidency, Reagan had brought the hostages home, survived an assassination attempt, pushed his budget through Congress, defunded everything from school lunches to disability programs, and smashed a union of federal employees by selling the action as a matter of law and order. Reagan's firing of the air controllers was a bold statement, but of a piece with his approach to conservative governance. It was the beginning of the Reagan Revolution shifting wealth from the middle class to the rich through tax cuts, moving government money out of social entitlement programs and into the military. To labor professionals, of course, the PACO firings threatened to embolden further anti-union actions not only from government but from employers generally. Much as Franklin D. Roosevelt's signature on the New Deal, labor legislation had a signal on a bill to the nation's workers, freeing them from hesitation about organizing, so would Reagan's actions now inspire anti-union retribution from management. 
on August 30th, the New York Times, having supported Reagan's tough stance, initially suggested that since the president had proved that Paco could not extort a favorable wage settlement by stopping the planes, it's time to change strategy. Everyone's interests, that of the president, the strikers, and the public, would now be served by offering to rehire the controllers on the government's terms. The paper cited polls showing that most Americans are behind the president but are uneasy about the harshness of his actions. But Reagan turned a deaf ear to any second guessing and still, on the offensive, went out of his way to disrupt labor's efforts to recover. On September 19th, the AFL-CIO coordinated a massive rally in the nation's capital, conspicuously dubbed Solidarity Day. The day was warm and sunny as participants flooded into the city by bus, train, and car from all parts of the United States. A crowd estimated at 260,000 gathered around the base of the Washington Monument before moving toward the Capitol. Taking three hours to traverse the distance, as many as 200 different labor-affiliated organizations were there. Kirkland took the podium to declare, Reagan has told us that he alone speaks for the working people of this country. But if you believe that, governments are raised by the people, not as their enemies, but as their instruments to promote the general welfare. Look about you. You are not alone. You are the people that do the work of America. You run its factories and its offices, work its farms, transport its produce, maintain its buildings, teach its children, nurse its sick, clean the streets, and fight its defense. When something goes wrong in America, you feel it first, before the politicians are the more securely placed. Something has gone wrong, and you know it all too well. His unforgiving stance towards the Union probably cost the United States and the airlines around $30 billion or $1.5 billion per month over the 20 months it took to get the air traffic control system back to full strength. Training new replacements, controllers alone, cost the government $2 billion. Between 1981 and 1985, the number of flights in the United States had grown from 66.7 million to 71.4 million. Yet in 1985, there were almost 5,000 fewer controllers on the job than in 1981. After almost 10 years of turmoil, the expenditures of millions of dollars, the destruction of homes, families, and careers, little real improvement occurred. Labor was waking up each morning to problems, and a anti-union White House was only one of the sources of the discomfort. Social and economic adjustments underway since the Second World War had accelerated. Suburbanization, the transition from manufacturing to service jobs, the decline of large urban manufacturing centers, and the growth of trade unions into mighty business enterprises. Looming over all such changes was globalization. The dispersal of the world trade and finance through advances in shipping, air freight, telecommunications, and computerized banking and money exchanges, which allowed U.S. business access to lower-cost workers and production overseas, a trend that accelerated when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1989, bringing down the Iron Curtain and opening new markets as well as cheap labor to global producers. This development was exacerbated by the surging economics of China and India, which offered the world new consumers as well as tons of less expensive workers. American unions facing contract negotiations are contemplating a strike were now dealing with factors utterly beyond their control. 
or a movement that knew in its bones the vital necessity of having leverage with which to bring opponents into line, labor came to occupy a position in which it had almost none. It had linked its fate to the activism of a political party that was far from activist, that largely took labor support for granted. There seemed little real pressure on the Democrats to deliver for labor when it knew that labor had nowhere else to go. To a degree, labor had become a victim of its own success, lulled for a generation by the view that the struggle for worker dignity and decent hours and conditions had ended. That victory had been secured by heroes with names like Gompers, Powderly, Jones, Lewis, and Ruther. Paco went into a managed retreat and negotiated not for better terms but tolerable adjustments, wage concessions, early retirement, and reduced benefits that were believed necessary to help employers stay afloat and keep jobs viable. The increasing use of replacement workers was soon joined by other nefarious personal innovations such as the large-scale hiring of temporary and part-time employees, as opposed to full-time employment with benefits, which management defended as a cost-saving measure but that hindered both collective bargaining and member recruitment. All the issues confronting organized labor from globalization to the use of these contingent workers would factor in pivotal confrontations at Hormel Foods in 1985 and 1986, Caterpillar in 1994, and United Parcel Services in 1997. And to wrap this one up, this is Lamar Lane, Director, National Capital Region. This podcast is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the member comes first.